This podcast is supported in part by the Solutions Journalism Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to rigorous and compelling reporting on the responses to social problems. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. We're going to talk today about something that most residents don't really give any thought to until it goes away. That's the electricity that magically turns on when we flip the switch. Sure, we think about it when we get our electric bills. And over the summer, in the middle of a pandemic, many customers found out those bills were going to go up. Then just a few days after that announcement, a tropical storm knocked out power to hundreds of thousands of residents, and it stayed out for days because those same utilities that wanted to raise the rates were caught flat-footed. It got people talking once again about breaking up utilities and calling for the $20 million a year CEO of Eversource to step down. I've never seen Connecticut more angry, and rightfully so. This anger is boiling over, partly because it hits them literally where they live. Electricity, internet connection, not a luxury or convenience, matter of life and death. And so from every part of the state, we are hearing the message, teach Eversource a lesson. Gosh, every two or three years, there's no new CEO, and it's the same old story, which is why I'm really focusing like a laser beam on a performance-based uh, regulation, performance-based uh, rate of return, ways that I can hold, hold whoever the CEO is accountable to make sure they get paid for really good performance, but not for bad performance. That's Senator Richard Blumenthal and Governor Ned Lamont. They were both pretty upset, but my guest, who's been covering energy and environment for years for the Connecticut Mirror, says it's not so simple. Jan Ellen Spiegel's been reporting on the big issues facing Connecticut when it comes to flipping that electric switch, and it's more than just storm response and electric rates. It's also about climate change and energy efficiency. It's about renewable power and a more modern electric grid. And it could mean lots of jobs for the state. But she tells me it's going to take Connecticut breaking one of its worst steady habits, it's got to decide that it's not so good to kick the can down the road when it comes to investment in the power sector and constantly, constantly having to fix an ancient system. Jan Ellen Spiegel, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. So you have these two big recent stories, and I think that they both address things that a lot of people in Connecticut are thinking about the electric utilities, about their electric service, about the future of their electric service. And it kind of goes like this. One, what happens when we have a big storm and everyone loses power? And how can we do a better job of keeping the lights on? And two, what's the future for the way we get our power? Are we ever going to get to a real clean energy grid? And one of the things that I find so fascinating, Jan, about your reporting is all of these things are really interconnected. So give us a little bit of a primer, first of all on how our electric utilities work. Because as you say in your one story, thinking about like Eversource, United Illuminating as utilities as we used to is a little bit of an outdated way of thinking about them. 
Well, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, in the parlance of the day, they're often referred to as EDCs, which are electric distribution companies, because that's what they do. They distribute the power. It's been a couple of decades since these guys were actually allowed to own generation. That would be the actual power plant itself. So what they do is they deliver the power to you. What you see on your bill that tells you how much power you used and the cost for actually that juice, that power, that's a pass through. They don't make any money on that. What they make money on is the delivery of the power and the hardware they need to deliver that power, which are the wires and poles. On that front, the delivery and the wires and poles, they are still a regulated company. And anything they do with regard to that has to go through a regulator in the state of Connecticut. That would be the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, Pura, and get approval for this stuff. And they can get paid back for having to repair poles and having to put up wires. And just that act of getting the power to you from point A to point B and uh, they apply to Pura for what they want for their rates, and they have to get approved. And that happens twice a year. You know, to bring it up to the present here, what had folks so upset about the, the particular this year's July 1st rate increase was that it came in the middle of a pandemic. So all you're paying for is that distribution. And that distribution is being done over a grid paradigm that has basically been around since Thomas Edison invented it in the <laughs> 1890s. <laughs> it's very much a central station model with big long wires that come from it. And frankly, Connecticut has very much resisted updating that to accommodate a lot of modern technology that could make that a little less, you know, of a problem in things like storms, where if, you know, one line goes down, it takes a whole bunch of other lines with it. Let's get to that rate increase, because this is important to all this. You say it happened in the middle of a pandemic. It did. But then it also happened, and they didn't know this was going to happen, but just days before one of a series of big storms, the hurricane that hit the East Coast, which basically meant tens of thousands of, of households were out of power for up to four or five days or even longer. Is is this something where, uh, whether it's the regulatory authority Pura that approves this rate increase or somebody in the governor's office of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection needs to take a look at the utilities and say, well, we're paying you more money than we used to, and you need to do a better job keeping the lights on. Or, or is it not that simple? Oh, we're talking about the energy system. It's never that simple. <laughs> um, there are a bunch of things that are going on in parallel here. The issue of how the utilities operate has been slowly, there's been a process underway for a while to slowly look at that and begin to change how the utilities are essentially paid for what they do. And uh, let me throw this out there. I had someone at, actually it was DEP, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, some years ago say to me, the utilities will value what we tell them to value. Mm. And over time, we have mostly told them to value 
those wires and poles and the delivery of the power. In a more modern iteration, you might want to change what you tell them to value. And one of the one of the ways is to change it from what we've had, which is often referred to as a cost of business model, paying them for what they put up and what they deliver versus a performance-based model. If we tell them their performance in how efficiently they deliver the power to us, if they are told to value that more, they will value that more. And in everyone's defense here, as I said, there is a process underway to do that. It takes quite a bit of time. And the first step of that is understanding what's on your grid. Our grid and our eyes into that grid is so old that we don't really know what's on there. And, um, and there's there's already an effort underway to start to modernize the grid. And maybe you can describe a little bit about what that is, because in my reading of your reporting and other coverage of this stuff over the years, what, when we talk about grid modernization on such an old-fashioned electric grid as we have, it kind of feels like baby steps. It doesn't feel like we're really fixing big substantive structural problems. It seems like we're kind of working around the edges. Or am I getting that wrong? One of the big things, and this is underway right now, is understanding what's on the grid. We do not, for the most part, have what are known as smart meters or advanced meters so the utility can actually see into the various stops on their grid, the homes, the offices and everything, what's going on, which would give them the ability potentially, if it was put up in a more modern way, of moving stuff around, getting power to where it needs to be, realizing that nobody's home on these 10 blocks and we don't need to be running all that juice into there. We can run it to the factory down the block or whatever. Uh, United Illuminating does have smart meters pretty much in place, um, not necessarily used as well as they should be. Eversource does not. And as part of this grid modernization effort that's been underway for a while, uh, the new head of Pura, who's not so new anymore, she's been there for about a year and a half, Marissa Gillette, I mean, she is adamant that the first step is getting these meters in so we know what the heck is on there. And she ordered Eversource by, this is some months back, you know, way back, even as the pandemic was starting, to have a smart meter plan uh, submitted to them by the end of July, which was done. And they have that plan and they are looking at it. And theoretically, they are going to have some ruling on it uh, by the end of the year. Of course, again, everybody had to stop to figure out, you know, whose fault it was that (laughs) Eversource didn't have enough crews in place for this particular storm. You know, if they'd had a million crews in place, the trees would have still come down, (laughs) you know, and that's where you get into the old versus new and... Um, you know, we're going to end up in an argument at some point over who pays for those smart meters. Somebody's got to pay for them when they go in. Yeah. And, and usually that, that means the ratepayers. I want to get 
to, to something, though. You, when you talk about if the trees come down in a storm like we had, that means that the power is going to go out. And a lot of people say, well, in other parts of the country, that doesn't happen because we've got power lines buried underground. And that's something that always comes up, Jan, after every one of these, these storms. And then people say, but it costs an awful lot to bury those power lines underground. What's the reality on that conversation right now in Connecticut about undergrounding cables so we don't have these problems of trees coming down and knocking down overhead power lines? Well, let's be clear. It is very expensive when you're, when you're dealing with stuff that's already above ground and you want to move it underground. That said, there are actually communities in the state that are, as they've built new subdivisions and things, will put these lines underground. And there are um, some areas that have put things underground. And I'll tell you, I'm hearing a lot more talk now from folks who are saying, maybe we should be looking at what they call strategic undergrounding. That means get your lines underground at your um, wastewater treatment plants, at your substations, at your um, pumping stations, at your hospitals, stuff like that. Um, which doesn't eliminate the problem entirely because there are still going to be portions of this that are above ground. Can you just go sweep through the state and put everything underground? I mean, you know, that is impractical. On the other hand, well, do you pay now or do you pay later? Are you going to pay to put everything back every time or are you going to get it underground and not for the most part have these problems? Are there problems with undergrounding? Yes, especially in a shoreline state like Connecticut. Um, you, the closer you get to the coast are bodies of waters that often flood, which climate change will likely make happen. Yes, those lines can get flooded. Are there ways to insulate them so they won't get flooded? Yes. The big argument you hear is that, oh, if something happens underground, you can never find it. I am told by people that, you know, there's a way more sophisticated technology out there. There are communications lines that can get buried with it that will pinpoint where the problem is. I mean, think about this for a second. New York City has had underground lines forever. I mean, they're ancient. The power doesn't go out in New York City very often. I mean, it's got to be something way upstream, like, you know, a massive failure along the East Coast. Those have been the ones that have hit them or, you know, potentially an underground fire. And they tend to be pretty isolated. So we've seen it work and we've seen it work in our own backyard, even in a place like New York City, where the, what's underground there is pretty old. That's Jan Ellen Spiegel. She covers energy and the environment for the Connecticut Mirror. We're going to continue our conversation about how to keep the lights on in just a minute. But first, I'd like to ask you to do two things. Go to ctmirror.org right now and become a member if you haven't yet. It helps us pay the bills for the great reporting you get on policy and politics here in Connecticut. And it also gets you access to our live events like our monthly Steady Habits Live Zoom gatherings. While you're on the site, you can also sign up for our emails because you'll get all of our stories delivered right to you directly. And you'll know about all of our events and special series, too. If you've already done all of these things, thank you so much. And you know what? Tell your friends. Jan Ellen Spiegel and I have spent the last 12 minutes or so explaining the complicated energy system that Connecticut has and why it's hard to keep the lights on during storms while also envisioning a better, safer, cleaner electric grid in the future. But because this is Connecticut, we'll always get the question, well, what does this have to do with me and my pocketbook? 
Well, Jan tells me we haven't done enough to look at the economic development opportunities in building a system that relies on energy efficiency and clean power. If you're going to start having to redesign a grid to some degree into smaller sections, say what we might call microgrids that can operate independently if the bigger power goes out, it's going to cost money, but it's also going to create jobs. And that's where you seem to get the disconnect in this state. The question Mm -hmm. that is incontrovertibly asked is, what's it going to do to my rates? How much is is it going to cost? And it might behoove everyone to stop thinking in terms of rates and thinking in terms of investments that down the road will make the grid more resilient and more flexible and end up costing less. And that is such a brutal concept to get through to people. But, but, but I think here's one of the reasons, Jen, and this is such a good point, but I think one of the reasons why people have a problem with thinking that way is because what they see in terms of that, that rate and that potential investment that they're making in a better grid or a more energy efficient future is companies like Eversource, big multi-state companies with a CEO that gets paid nearly $20 million a year. And I think that there's probably, amongst a lot of people, a lack of confidence that my quote-unquote investment in the future is actually going to go into the things that I want. And it's not just going to go to the shareholders of a big multi-state company. Which is a, a totally valid point. And, um, you know, I should just say for the record, everybody thinks of Eversource as being the giant here because it does have, you know, way more of customers in the state. You know, interestingly, United Illuminating is a piece of one of the biggest energy companies in the world. It's a far bigger company. You know, that said, Part of what the grid modernization process, the way it's laid out now, which is in a series of what they call dockets, there's like a dozen of them, and there may end up being more, what it's doing is going step by step to change some of these paradigms. You know, unfortunately for ratepayers, the very last one really in the process is looking at a new rate structure, because how are you going to put in a new rate structure if you haven't done step one, which is to get in those smart meters to figure out what's there and what you need Mm -hmm. and think in terms of the future, which is, okay, we want people to own electric cars. Well, electric cars need to be charged. We're going to need more juice. Do we just need more juice or do we need to move things around and be more efficient about it? You know, I'm not an expert at this stuff, but these are the kinds of things that need to be looked at. And again, we're talking economic development here. Someone has to pay. Nothing is free. So how are you going to figure out how to pay for it, how to move into the future, how to even help with things like um, ameliorating climate change in the process and get folks on equal footing and have the legislature in particular understand what they're dealing with. You know, let me, I think the classic case of lack of understanding was what happened with the funding sweeps for um, uh, the Green Bank and the Energy Efficiency Fund. Those monies were being used to help people along all kinds of income brackets minimize their electricity use through efficiency and other means. 
Well, that money got taken away. So these fewer people could be served. That is not a chess player's way of thinking. That is a very short term way of looking at, well, I need this money, I'm going to take it. Those sweeps, those happened at one of the many times of fiscal crisis that the state has undergone when the legislature said they needed money and they took it from that particular bucket. You, you referenced this earlier, Jan. Do you sense that some of that same short-term thinking is at play right now when people talk about who to blame for the long power outages or talking about breaking up the utilities as they currently exist? That's totally short term. And for the most part, unrealistic. I mean, how much time do you want to spend pointing fingers at the utilities when you could be doing something that could keep it from happening again, not the not the putting the power back, but the power going out part. In terms of breaking up the utilities, um, yeah, technically you could do it. It would cost a fortune and it wouldn't really get you anything in terms of the economic development component of it, which everybody kind of working together and looking at it as an investment where you're spending money to make money. I mean, you know, this is the business world. That's how it works. And economists told me, you know, going back, just relating to the pandemic and whether clean energy, remaking the grid, stuff like that. Um, was a good way to help pull the state out, they said, this is exactly the time you should be putting money in there because it's going to go a really, really long way. The other quick fix you hear is, oh, we should all become municipal uh, utilities. Well, I mean, <laughs> okay, each individual town would have to go buy their wires. You'd have to buy their poles. You'd have to buy everything. That would be even more expensive. So, when you start looking logically at this stuff, what makes the most sense? What makes the most sense to most of the people I talked to, well, all of the people I talked to, was a modernization process that looked at the technology that is available here in 2020 versus 1895 <laughs> and how you use that to really modernize everything. And, you know, clean energy fits into that too. You know, during the pandemic, the states around us actually were stepping into that and doing more work with their clean energy, seeing almost immediately Massachusetts and New York clear examples of this, where you know, from the get-go, they saw this as a way to pull out, to spend money, to make sure they were ramping up their solar programs, make sure they were, you know, doing any number of things that would create the jobs needed for 2020 to help restore their economies. So, mm -hmm. as you said at the beginning of this, yeah, it's all interrelated, and I'm sure there are a few glazed eyes out there, <laughs> but... You know, find me someone who doesn't want to throw that switch in their room and have the, the lights come on, you know? Uh, Jen Ellen Spiegel covers energy and the environment for the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks so much for coming on with me, Jan. I really appreciate it. Anytime. My pleasure. You can read all of Jan's stories about energy and the environment at ctmirror.org. Steady Habits is produced by me and Jess Friedman. Thanks to Bruce Putterman, Beth Hamilton, and Kyle Constable. Our steady beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. 
I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me, and we'll talk to you soon.